as we come to the reading and the proclamation of God's word. Let's pray together as we remain standing. Father, we thank you for this holy night. And we come for only one purpose, and that is to adore you, the King. Lord, in ways large and small, we reenact what the Magi did, leaving home and culture, leaving every worldly thing that they thought would bring them happiness. And yet, in recognizing the world's emptiness, they went and sought the presence of the king, and when they found him, they worshiped him. So, Lord, we come tonight, having found you, we worship you. You are all around us, Lord, and I just pray that tonight, as your spirit moves and works and intercedes, that we would not miss what you have for us. We would not miss the significance of that glorious moment in time, the moment of your coming. So, Lord, would you overcome my sin and flaws of my heart that you would take the meager words that I bring and you would use them, Lord, to glorify and honor yourself. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. The scripture that I'll use tonight comes from uh, 1 John, not the Gospel of John, but 1 John, same author, different work. And he writes this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard and which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We've seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the word of the Lord for you tonight, his church. And I pray that the Spirit of God would let us see a glorious moment in time that not only will change and has changed the world, but can change each one of us. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you've been around First Pres for any time at all, uh, you know that uh, my mom taught middle school English for 30 years in Dallas, Texas. Her love for the beauty of words, it was her passion in life, and I was so grateful that she instilled it in me. I'm a preacher. I trafficked in words. Words are the currency of my life. And so I'm constantly reading. I'm always looking for authors for men and women who have that unique ability to arrange words in just such a way that their beauty touches my soul. 
And those moments are rare, but I covet them. And frankly, I had never had that kind of experience before while reading what is commonly referred to as a haiku. You know, when I was in middle school, I thought when I learned what a haiku was, I thought, well, that's kind of silly. I didn't really think of it as an art form, but I was certainly wrong. For those of you who don't know, a haiku is a Japanese form of poetry in which there are only 17 syllables. There are five in the first line, seven in the second, five in the third, and they normally have something to do with the natural order. So it's a hard set of parameters, but when done well, they are beautiful. And I discovered this when I stumbled upon Matsuo Basho, who is a 17th century Japanese poet who's widely regarded as the greatest haiku master of all time. And his most famous poem is called The Old Pond. And it goes like this. An old silent pond. Into the pond, a frog jumps. Splash. Silence again. Now, at first, you kind of think, well, there's not really much there. <laughs> kind of short. What's the big deal? But see, the artist, the author, he's trying to stop you. He's trying to arrest your movement in the haste of your life so that you'll look at something. He's brought before you an old silent pond. Maybe you're on a bridge overlooking it. Maybe you stand on the shore, but this pond has a feeling of permanence, like it's been here for hundreds of years. And as you stand there, you, you can see that the pond is like glass. It's absolutely still. It's quiet. Maybe you hear the wind in the trees, maybe the, the sound of a bird calling, but it's just permeated by peace and quiet. And you just love to be there. And then kind of out of nowhere, a frog leaps. Can you see the frog? It jumps and its body is elongated. Its legs extending. It's kind of flying over the still water. And then when it lands, it hits the water. Splash. Water's displaced, goes up in the air. And then what? Ripples. Start in the middle where the splash was and they extend all the way to the edges until finally, slowly, gradually, it all calms back down and again, the pond is still and silent and you never would have seen it without the beauty of Basho's words. He's trying to say to you, look, listen, pay attention to the unique, marvelous, wonderful, beautiful things that God is doing around you every day in the routine and the mundane. Just look at it. Don't miss it. It's right in front of you. Just reading those 17 syllables can take me to that place and make me yearn for that place. And in the busyness of my life, I can tell you, I have thought about it often 
since then. See, even though Basho wrote in the 17th century, he still understood the human heart, the way it functions, the way we tend to not like to linger and reflect and think too deeply. We'd much prefer to kind of skim across the surface. It's 21st century America. We're, we're preoccupied with our screens. We want what we want when we want it. We want it quickly. We're constantly moving from one thing to the other. We have an attention span of about 20 seconds of digesting information before we feel like we need to move on to the next thing before we, we get distracted or bored. Frankly, if you were reading a book and came across the old pond, I bet you'd turn the page because you wouldn't see anything there. You wouldn't see the moment that the author was trying to show you, and that's what happens in our relationship with God. God doesn't work at the same pace of this life. We turn the page too quickly on what he's doing, and we, we miss it. He's working in and around us all the time, but we don't have eyes that, that see, and so what does he do? He, he's the great artist, and he gives us the beauty of words, the beauty of his word, the beauty of the word made flesh, the beauty of 1 John 1, 1 to 4, when John is trying to do exactly what Matsuo Basho is trying to do in the haiku. He's just trying to stop you, and he wants you to look at something. He's asking you on Christmas Eve not to miss it. I don't know why you came tonight. Odds are some of you were forced to be here. Let's just put that on the table, right? You came in town, you're gonna stay at your parents' house, you gotta go to church, all right? So here you are. But I, I believe in the providence of God. I think you're here for a reason. I don't want you to miss it in my prayer is that you would see what God has for you in 1 John that you'd see Jesus. 1 John 1, 1 to 4, written by John who wrote the gospel, and he was intimately and deeply in relationship with Jesus. He's described as the disciple whom Jesus loved. So understand, John had intimate awareness. He was with Jesus all the time, heard him speak, watched him live, saw everything that Jesus did, had unique access and John writes this letter because there was a false teaching that had appeared in the church saying that Jesus didn't really come in the flesh. They said it just seemed like he did. It appeared as if he lived a human life, but he really didn't. So first John is actually John's ode to Christmas where he is defending the gospel against the false teaching and he's saying, no, no. Jesus came in the flesh. Here's what Christmas means, and it's no more complex than a 17-syllable poem. First thing, God has a plan. God has a plan. He starts in verse 1, and he says, that which was from the beginning. In other words, everything I'm about to tell you, it's always been set up this way. There's always been a plan. And that should be deeply reassuring to us. It should give us security and confidence in what we see happening around us. Because you know what? A lot of times we look at the world and it feels like, 
It's just spinning out of control. Like there's nobody in charge. And when it feels like that, we wonder like, God, do you, you even see what's going on? And John says, that which was from the beginning. Like God's always planned to come and his plan to was redeem and save the world by entering it through himself. In himself, it's like, it's like coming up to an old silent pond that feels permanent. Like it's been there hundreds of years. Like you can always go back to it. And that's the truth of the gospel. It's the plan that's always been there. And we can always go back to it. You know, I, I worked in homelessness for about the last eight years and we were working so hard to come up with a plan that would actually help people and take homeless people and get them off the street. There really hadn't been a plan to do that before. But about five years, we created one. The plan really started to work. We, we housed in three years about 750 people. But there were other people who continued to complain. They said, wait, I still see homeless people. And so we would have these meetings and we'd say, this is a hard, complex problem that isn't going away anytime soon because there's so many factors in it, but there's a plan. And the plan's working, and here's the data. And that's all John is trying to reassure us about. This is a hard world to live in. The kingdom of God has not been fully inaugurated yet. That happens when he comes again, but there's a plan and it's working. It's transforming lives. It's offering hope. And John says to us tonight, that which is from the beginning, be reassured. Things are not out of control. God has a plan. And the plan is to redeem and save the world in Jesus. Secondly, the plan is intellectually solid and it's deeply personal. And I would think that that's what you would want in any plan. Before you have a plan to buy a car, before you have a plan to buy a house, I'm sure that you wanna know that that plan can stand up to intellectual scrutiny. Like if someone asked you a question, you'd be able to defend the reason why you made the decision that you made. Here's why. And it would not need to be just a, a, a sort of a 30,000 foot view of, well, here's my decision. It would need to be deeply personal to you. You would have to be able to defend it. So the great artist says there was, there was this frog that leapt into the pond. There was a splash. Somebody arrived, verse one, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. So what John is revealing is there was a glorious moment in time. It happened, and I'm telling you, it happened because I saw it. I touched him. I heard him talk. And oh, by the way, at the same time John saw all these things, there were hundreds of eyewitnesses. And all those eyewitnesses could have easily refuted what John wrote down had John been making it all up. If it was all stories, there were plenty of people to refute it, but we have no such record. In fact, we have non-Christian historians who are recording what Jesus of Nazareth did. They don't even have a dog in the fight. And you're getting corroborative evidence about the person and work of Jesus Christ that says 
there was a glorious moment in time when God became human flesh. So maybe you don't believe that tonight. Maybe you're listening to me right now and you're like, well, he's got some energy, but he really makes no sense. It's okay. If you don't believe the same things I believe, that's fine. What I'm asking you to do is at least have the intellectual integrity to defend your position. Don't give me the intellectual arrogant way that says that couldn't possibly be true. You've never actually investigated it. You've never studied it. You've never asked, what do I do with the fact that maybe God broke into human time and space? What do I do with the historical reality? Jesus of Nazareth, verifiable historical fact. Nobody's debating it. So what do I do with the life of Jesus? And then, oh, by the way, what do I, what do, I do with the cross? See, those are intellectual questions that we have to answer. If you're gonna come to a position, at least be able to defend it. We can have a conversation about that. Our family, since last uh, January, we have eagerly anticipated the arrival of our first grandson. Man, have we been excited. And I know there's been, you know, Presbyterians don't bet, but there's been a lot of conversation about how soon my grandson Callum would appear in a sermon. Well, if you, if you bet on under three months, then you win. Because like today's 10 weeks or something like that. So he's appearing in a sermon. So we rejoiced when we found out Caroline was pregnant. Right, we, we celebrated when we saw the first sonogram, the heartbeat, oh my gosh, this, it was awesome. And then we had the, you know, the, the dinner party, the family came over, it was the gender reveal. You know, Lee and I didn't do any gender revealing. We were like, we were happy to just go out to dinner. We wouldn't do all that stuff. But now we're, we're gender revealing, we celebrate, right? But I'm telling you, none of that compared to the moment in time when Callum Donald Swanson entered the world, when I saw him, when I held him, when I took his face in my hands, everything was different. And you've never seen my grandson, but you know he lives by the testimony of my lips, by my Facebook page, right? <laughs> I'm bearing witness to his existence. That's all John is saying. Yeah, the prophecies of the Old Testament, they were great. They promised the Messiah would come, but John is now saying, people, I saw him. I touched him. I heard his words. And everything else has been different since. There was a moment in time when he arrived, there was a splash and you can still hear the echoes. You can still see the ripples and some of those ripples have reached your life. Third, Jesus says, there's this plan, it's always been. John says there's a plan, it's always been. It's intellectually sound, deeply personal and it reveals that Jesus is the life that we look for. Look, look at the specificity of the language in verse two. John says, the life appeared. Not a life or just life appeared. He says, the life appeared. He says it again in verse three. We proclaim to you the eternal life. What he's highlighting is what makes Christian faith unique from every other religious tradition in the world. Because Christianity is the only one 
where the founder says, there's not all these ways and things that you need to do. Every other founder of a major worldwide religion says, go this way, do these things, say these words, take these trips, do, accomplish. Jesus says, no, no, I've done all the stuff. Don't go find the way, I'm the way. He says, I'm the eternal life. Verse three, we proclaim to you what we've seen and heard. We're eyewitnesses so that you also may have fellowship with us. And you know who we fellowship with? The Father and the Son. So if you have the Son, you have the Father. Jesus is the way to reconciliation with the Father. We wanna be reunited with your maker. You wanna be forgiven. You wanna answer the longings of the human heart. Jesus says, well, that's me. And that's a marvelous thing because again, this is not complicated. God, hear me say this, God is not trying to be hidden. If God was trying to remain hidden, then there's never a splash. God never shows up. The water's never displaced, there's no chaos. But he didn't ask us to leap to heaven. He leapt to earth and we've seen the ripples ever since. So friends, the answer, the result of everything that John has said, that which was from the beginning, that we've seen and heard, that's what we testify to. We're telling you about it, why? Verse four, so that our joy can be complete and known, so that you can know that joy. And don't we yearn for that? To know joy inside that's beyond happiness, but a security from coming that comes from knowing that no matter what happens, that I am secure in my faith and in the God who made me. It's how I felt. I had this joyous feeling when I finished reading that poem because I didn't miss it. I just took delight in the fact that I stopped long enough to see the pond and to look at the frog and to know that yes, the, the pond was roiled for a moment, but it came back to peace again. And that's all that John is saying. Is there just this plan that's been in place for a long time. There was a splash that echoes today. There's still ripples on the water and chaos that is created. But what we know about the eternal life, Jesus, is that if he came the first time, then he will come again. And when he does, one day all the ripples subside and there will be peace and stillness once more because that is the plan of God that was inaugurated and enacted on this holy night. So interesting fact, 1853, there's some scientists studying human behavior and they figure out that human beings have a unique ability. It's called the cocktail party effect. Okay, don't get all excited about the next cocktail party you're gonna be at. It's not about alcohol, but what happens when you're at a party? There's loud music, there's lots of commotion, there's lots of people, and generally there's loud talking. You know, you've been at a party where you're talking about this loud to the person who's right in front of you because everyone else is talking and you're just trying to be heard. You know, what we have the ability to do as human beings is in the midst of all that noise, we can pick out one conversation and focus on it. And amazingly, sometimes it's not the conversation with the person that we're looking at. Sometimes you find the conversation between the two people behind you more entertaining. And you can pick that out in your mind and you can listen to that while you're looking at the person in front of you. 
Apparently you've done that before. Apple Siri can't do this. You put Siri in a cocktail party, it blows her mind. But human beings can focus in the midst of all the chaos on one thing. And that's what John is trying to get you to do here. He's saying, look, don't miss this. That which was from the beginning that God foretold happened. There was a glorious moment in time and it changed the world and it can change you. Don't miss it. I call this poem Christmas. An old plan for peace. God leaps into our dark world. Grace, true life has come. Let's pray. Lord, how often we are distracted and how often we resist looking at or even thinking about the deeper things of life. I pray that tonight by your spirit, we'd look, that we'd see a glorious moment in time that had long been planned the ripples of which we still feel today. Lord, may we see it and consider it and understand that the light has come. It is for today and for all eternity. We pray in Jesus' name.